Thank you for reading that. I was thinking, and in, in when I pre-read some of the scriptures and I was looking at that, the end of the age conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, and I was looking at um, the things that are happening in our lives, and you know, for years now, I've heard Christians say something along the line of, well, you know, either Jesus is coming back, or before you know it, we're gonna die and go be with him. And I was, this week, I've had so many different um, emotions maybe, um, so many different thoughts, so many different scenarios where I find myself. And it has to do with the fact that not only am I you know, here at Living Water Fellowship and we're preaching through Romans and I'm, I'm thinking and I'm praying for the families, for you guys here, I'm thinking about the movie and the, the film that we're working on and the lives of people there. I'm thinking about my, my own extended family and things that are happening in my extended family. And so I, I had found myself earlier in the week, I did a, a coffee with Pastor Joseph and I just asked the question, is your heart troubled? And one of my, my and the reason I was even asking the question is because I, I think it was Monday or Tuesday morning, Pastor Gary Beasley from Christ Street Fellowship was out on a walk and he just did a little live stream thing on his Instagram or whatever it was. And he just was quoting this verse. He said, the verse for you guys this week is from John 14. He says, it's, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And when he said it, I thought, I haven't thought about that concept or that verse for weeks. And I've been walking through all kinds of things. And I've been having all sorts of reasons that my heart is telling me that I need to be troubled. And this is the thing, according to the scripture and according to my experience, our hearts are very deceitful. And so my heart is always trying to tell me something that I need to be focusing on, even when I shouldn't be focusing on it. Uh, for instance, my heart, um, and this, this, is a, you know, this is the reality of something, when y your heart will tell you, if you would have this one thing, if this one thing, if you had it, then everything else would be okay. And then once you have it, then it says now, now if you had this one thing, then it would be good. And I remember you know, hearing this, thinking about this, but the real shocker was when here I am, I was 31 years old, I had been for, since the time I was 15, I had been praying for a godly wife, and now I got married, and so for, from 15 till 31, my heart is telling me, if you just get married, you'll be happy. You'll be satisfied. And then, once I got married, my heart starts saying, hey, look over there. And I'm like, excuse me, I'm already married. I have a wife. But my heart says, but look at that one. What if you would have married that one? And my heart will mess with me and deceive me and make me think that I need something that I don't need. It will not make me happy. It will make me actually have a lot of heartache and a lot of pain. And it's because of the way the enemy works. The enemy comes in and the enemy doesn't care how you are destroyed. The enemy doesn't care how you are discontent as long as you're destroyed, as long as you're discontent, as long as you're not able to function. And so this week, as I was thinking about not letting my heart be troubled, I thought, you know, the enemy is so insidious right now. Here in the United States, we have a huge percentage of people who are very, 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 very concerned about the coronavirus. And then 
On the other hand side, we have a huge percentage of people who are very, 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 very concerned about how all the people who are concerned about the coronavirus are responding. And you know what? The enemy doesn't care which one you're concerned about as long as you are concerned and in a panic and in somewhat of a tizzy and that you're running around trying to figure something out, whether it's you or this person over here trying to figure out how to get everyone to wear a mask or whether it's this one over here saying no one should be wearing masks. And as long as you're busy and as you're politically involved or somehow doing something, the enemy doesn't care as long as you don't remember why God put you here on earth. And so... I've had several strong moments this week and a whole bunch of weak moments. I've had a lot of moments where I'm, I'm just going, yeah, my heart is troubled. It really is. Just look. This is why my heart is troubled. Your heart should be troubled too. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute. Should, should my heart be troubled? And so I wanted to actually, instead of going with where we were there in Romans, I wanted to ask two questions and then just talk about it. So the first question I have is, are you afraid to die? For real, are you afraid to die? Now, chances are, when I ask you that question, you immediately thought of someone that you think should be afraid to die, or would be afraid to die, or could potentially be afraid to die, or you thought of someone who might be dying, but you didn't think of a tombstone with your own name on it. Because when I mention death, your brain automatically puts it in a category of things that happen to other people, not things that happen to me. And I suppose that's good. Otherwise, we might be paralyzed. If you think of how many traffic accidents there are every day, and if you only think about how many traffic accidents there are every day, and if every morning you turned the news on and the news anchor breathlessly reported how many people died from car accidents yesterday and how many car accidents there were yesterday and started telling you which cars are more likely to be involved in accidents, which roads have more accidents, and which time of day have more accidents, and all of those things, you would start going, okay, okay, seriously, do I really need to go anywhere today? Can I just stay home? And then you start calculating and looking at your car going, I think I have the wrong kind of car. I need a different car because, because this car seems to be in a lot of accidents out there. And then you, then you start saying, I, I cannot take main roads anymore. I have to only take little bitty back roads. And after a while, you're like, you know what? I think if I look at the percentage of accidents that happen in the United States, there are less horse and buggy accidents than there are car accidents. So I'm going to go with a horse and buggy. Actually, did you know that there are less camel accidents in the United States? Maybe I'll go with those. And you start looking at all kinds of data, and it doesn't even make logical sense, but you are not driven by logic right now. You're driven by fear. And so you're trying to preserve your life somehow. And so it is true that we don't want to be frozen with this thought, but we have to ask the question, are you afraid to die? And it's a good question. And should we be afraid to die? And so I have this, when I was a kid, my family was in a time frame where we had all been reading the Bible always in German, and then we started reading it in English, and then my parents were trying to implement devotions into our life, and we were trying to figure out how that is supposed to work. And so I remember, I was, I think, 15, 14 maybe, 14 or 15, and we were sitting around a circle in our living room in Montana, and we were all reading, and my dad had chosen this chapter, so we were actually over in Matthew chapter 10. 
and we read this verse, and because my parents were wanting us all to be involved, they would ask questions. And so we read Matthew chapter 10, and verses 27 to 31 in particular, I remember standing out a little bit. Well, maybe it was just verse 28, but it says in verse 27, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And so we read this section, and my dad, I don't remember actually whether it was dad or mom who asked the questions, because sometimes when we would have family devotions, the way we work is my dad would say, okay, everyone, grab your Bibles, get in here, sit down, we're going to have devotions. And then we'd sit down and we'd say, okay, we're going to read. And he'd say, we're going to read in Matthew chapter 10. And so then we'd all be like reading along and then we would get to the questions and dad would like, mom, do you have questions to ask to make them think so they'd think about their spirit? So they would work together, okay? And I'm just saying that because most of you, if you've ever had family devotions, you know that there's kind of sometimes a lot of things you think about besides actually the Bible and other things because you know, sometimes just to get to that point, your parents have to like really exert a lot of energy and a lot of force just to make it happen. It's just part of how it works. So the good news is on this particular day, we managed to be calmed down by verse 28. We were no longer having any bickering or any other problems and we were just reading. And so we all took our turns and I think it might've been my turn. And I read it and then mom asked the question. She said, so who has the power to throw us into hell? based off of this verse where it says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And actually, I'm going to have to back this up. I wasn't 15. I would have been 14 or 13, 13 or 14 at the time that this happened, probably 13 actually. And immediately when they asked the question, I was like, that's talking about the devil. I'm scared. And my parents and my older sister were like, no. And I'm like, uh-huh. It said, throw your body, your soul into hell, and that's got to be the devil. And so we had this conversation, and I wasn't quite sure they were right. But I just remember they were insisting that when it says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, that that's talking, you know, and if you think about all throughout the ages when you've had people, Christians, believers who were in persecution and someone would say, you will, you know, take the, the account of Daniel, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they, they are, they're told you need to bow down to this idol or we'll throw you in the fire. So they're threatening to kill the body. That's what they're threatening for. And so what did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? They said, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we will still serve him. Why? Why would they say that? Especially if you live, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't just kids, and they weren't monks. They weren't just living off in some monastery somewhere and had no idea what was going on in the world. They lived in the middle of what was happening. They knew what was happening in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. They knew how easy it was to die. They knew how easy it was for the king to say, go kill him because someone had disobeyed the law. They knew what the laws of the Medes and the Persians were. They knew what the laws of Babylon were. They knew what the laws before were. They were actually possibly part of making the current laws of discussing what should be there. 
and they knew what the thoughts of the people were all throughout Babylon. The people in Babylon did not love other people. They didn't care, they just cared for themselves. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were faced with this decision, and it wasn't like one morning they woke up and they were kind of shocked and startled because there was a, a big idol there, and then there was a, a, a cry going out saying, everyone bow down, and they're like, oh, we can't do that, I don't know why. No, they had, they had time, maybe weeks, months, potentially over a year of time from the time that Nebuchadnezzar said, I want you to make the statue. And so from the time all the, the, the goldsmiths and everyone are coming together and designing a statue that they're setting up and the height and the, the bigness of, the, of this, the grandeur of this statue as they're building this, then the word is going out. Do you know? Because what did, what did King Nebuchadnezzar want? He wanted everyone from all throughout his kingdom to bow down. And so the potentiality is that he actually sent out the word and people from distant places in the kingdom were having to travel to Babylon just to be present when this big statue is unveiled and when the music is played on all kinds of instruments and when the, when the music plays, that's the moment we're also supposed to, supposed to bow down to this big statue, this idol. So this wasn't something that just happened overnight, unexpectedly. It, was, it took some time. There was building, there was traveling, there was planning. There might even have been concession stands and all kinds of infrastructure for this thing. It was a big event in the kingdom. It was the kind of thing that in the history of the kingdom, you say this was the year that Nebuchadnezzar had when we worshiped that, that idol, when we all gathered for that big bowing down to that idol out there. And so this is what they were dealing with. It wasn't suddenly. And so here's the way the conversations must have gone. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you're Jews. You know that you shouldn't bow down to anything other than God. And then there's the Jews that live in Babylon. A lot of them. We don't read of any of them being thrown in the, the, the fiery furnace. So one of two things happened. Either... They were like, you know what? We're just little people. No one notices us. We're not going. And they don't go to the party. They stay home and grind corn or something. Or the people that were enforcing it really didn't care about anyone except for those in power because that was really their goal. Their, their enemies was to try to get rid of these three. And so they were trying to destroy them. And so the question almost immediately is, okay, so there's gonna be music and then we're gonna bow down to this idol and if we don't, we're gonna be thrown in the fiery furnace. Are you afraid to die? Can you imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego looking at each other going, okay, are we afraid? Like really? And they're discussing it. Now these, are, these men had already gone through a siege on their city back when they were in Jerusalem. They'd already gone through watching uh, people being killed when the soldiers came running in and, and overwhelmed the city. They were carried away captive for some reason, but many of their families were just destroyed. They saw other, they saw, um, potentially saw some of their own scribes, some of their own um, leaders be killed. They had been through a war in which they lost very badly. And so when they're thinking, okay, so they say we should be thrown into the fiery furnace, like they mean this, this people kills people. They've seen evidence firsthand that when 
the Babylonians make a law and do something. When Nebuchadnezzar went to Jerusalem and he said, okay, you know, surrender now and I'll take you in peace or don't and I'll kill you, he killed them. And he took some of them away captive, but he killed many of them. Whole families just killed them. So they have, they have reason to believe that if he's saying they're going to die, that they're going to die. So are you afraid to die? It's a good question. But what they decided on that day, and I think they decided it long before that day, and they might have had many conversations in the little, the maybe the, the might have been the, I'm assuming there were like what the equivalent to a synagogue in Babylon, because there were so many temples in Babylon for all the other gods, that I'm assuming there was one to the Jewish God, the Hebrew God. And so I'm assuming that because sometimes the prophets were writing letters to the priests and the other leaders in Babylon. And so there are discussions happening. And the question is, okay, you know, I am down here. I, I can probably escape. I can just go home. I won't have to go out to the field where the big idol is. No one will see that I'm not bowing. But you, you are, you know, you, you guys have positions. You've been given the top three positions in the cabinet, basically. There's no way that you can avoid not being there. So when you are there, what, what are you guys going to do? And so the discussion somewhere along the way went and ended up on that day when they are there and they're present and the music plays and everyone bows and there's a huge fanfare. And then the guys with the binoculars that are watching, not the whole crowd, they're not interested in the whole crowd, they're watching three people. They're watching Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They want to know, are these three going to bow? Because if they don't, we're going to destroy them. We're going to be out of, we don't have to work with them in the government halls any longer. We're so sick of them. They always bring in ethics and they always bring in logic and they always bring in their God and they will not be moved. And so we're going to destroy them. And so what, who, who, the cabinet that is supposed to be bowing and focusing on this, they are busy. What are they doing? They're watching. And the moment that Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego do not bend, bow down, they go trotting off to King Nebuchadnezzar and say, oh, king, you know that you said that, you know, you built this big statue and you said that when you play the music, we're all supposed to bow down to it. You remember that? Yeah, of course he remembers it. He just did it. It's just been happening, right? He says, well, it has come to our attention that there are some Hebrews in our midst who have refused to bow down. And so who is it? Well, there they are. And, and when they come to the king, the king gives them a second chance, basically, and says, you know, why don't we play the music again? Maybe you misunderstood the instructions. Perhaps all those months and weeks of sitting in my cabinet when we were forming the words in the decree that was to go out, and perhaps all the multiple copies and the planning of how to get all the heads of state back in here, maybe you missed the point of all of this. So let's just repeat it one more time. They say, you know, don't, don't bother King Nebuchadnezzar. You don't have to. We already know. We don't have to answer you on that one. We can tell you right now. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to your statue. We will not worship anything else. You can throw us in the fiery furnace, but we will not bow down to this. So I'm going to submit that on a very physical level, they were afraid to die. But they had seen something that was bigger than just dying. 
they realized that there was a God in heaven and that there was a second death that they were wanting to avoid. They did not want to die and not be with God in eternity. And wherever they learned that, wherever they saw that, they were being motivated by this. And so when, if they would have heard what Jesus said here, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. See, the thing, the mistake I made was I, for whatever reason, was giving Satan a lot of power. I thought Satan had the power to literally drag me into hell. Satan doesn't have that power. Satan can come and tell you lies. Satan can come and, and try to scare you. Satan can come and try to distract you so you don't hear the words of God. But Satan cannot destroy you. He cannot pull you down into hell. He doesn't have that power. He didn't even create hell. Hell was created by God for Satan. You can read in different places throughout scripture what the whole, in Revelation is one of them. And so what I was mistaking was I was thinking that somehow I needed to be afraid of Satan in order to defeat him. But what God is saying is no, you do not have to fear anything except God. In the question I asked earlier when I said, and this is the second question, I'm asking the two questions, are you afraid to die and should you be? So I guess that's two already. And then there is, is your heart troubled and should it be? So four questions. But, but the question, I'm, when, when you look at is your heart troubled, if you look at John 14, and this is where Jesus is talking about it, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled, he immediately started talking about a future that was not here on earth. He immediately started talking about heaven. He immediately said that I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And it's very similar to the thought of <clears throat> if God does not prepare a place for us in heaven, then what if he is preparing a place for us in hell? Because that was the other question from Matthew where he said, Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so this is a serious question. And so the reason I ask this question, are you afraid to die? Because sometimes we convince ourselves, our hearts are like, oh no, we're not afraid. And, and you, you, the, in history, reading history is fun. You'll see the battlefields getting prepared. You'll hear, potentially, the boasting of the soldier, the armies as they're getting ready. Maybe they're putting on their armor. Maybe they're putting on, you know, if you think Civil War time period, it happened over and over again. You would have these soldiers and they would be complaining and complaining. There's letters written home. They're complaining, our general won't let us fight. If he'd only let us fight and we get to him, we could finish this war already. I just want to get out on the battlefield and fight. That's what I'm here for. Let's go do it. So then the day of the battle comes. They get out on the battlefield and somebody's shooting at them and they start running and they leave all their guns and their ammo and their coats and everything and they're running away. They've just said that if we could only get out on this battlefield, we'll show them 
And then they get out there and something triggers and something changes. And I think one of the things that changes is that as they're going toward the battlefield, they're hearing about people dying and stuff, but they don't think of it as something that applies to them. I'm not going to die. I'm going to go win. I'm going to be the hero. I'm going to be Sergeant York. I'm going to take, you know, 132 captives. I'm going to do all of this. And then what happens? They get their bullets start flying. Someone next to them dies. And suddenly they realize, I could die. And they're not ready. And in that moment, they're scared and they're running. They're not, you can't at that moment use logic on them. You can't say, hold on, hold on. Let's talk this through. No, there's no talking things through. They're running. Because what had happened? Their heart, while their mouth had been boasting, their heart was not prepared for what they were about to face. And so what you would notice is after a while, you'd have these, these units in, the, in any military who have been through multiple battles. They've gone through all kinds of things. And when they go in, it seems like they're rock solid. It's not that they haven't ever been afraid. It's not that they might not be afraid now, but they have done something with that fear. Somehow, before they got there, they did something logically and emotionally that helped them go in and stand under fire. And so on a Christian perspective, what we're asking is, what have you done so that you can say, I am not afraid to die? Is it a boast? that is in the day of peace, and when the battle comes, you'll suddenly say, actually, I'm very scared, I'm running. Or is there some real hope in the reason that you say that you're not afraid to die? Because what we're working toward is that eventually we will end up standing before God and we're gonna see him, and on that great day, we're, we're well, let's just read it. It's in Revelation chapter, I believe, chapter 20. In verse 11, and John is writing this and he's telling us what he's seen. And he says, Revelation 20, verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So there's this moment when God is sitting on the throne, and everyone, small and great, it says the dead, small and great, that means children, adults, everyone, is, come, is brought before the great throne. And as they're brought before the great throne, books are open. And this is the moment where you have all of the records of heaven. And so, you know, any, any earthly kingdom has records. Um, you look, every kingdom has had some kind of records. We keep records in some way or another. In this day and age, we have a lot of digital records because if we tried to keep all the paper records, it would be stacks and stacks and stacks of records. So there's just, there's so many records. And, and if you go to, the, you know, your county right now, you can go search for yourself. You can see if you've ever had any, um, if you've ever been pulled over by the police, if you've had any tickets, if you've had, there's all these records that are out there. And if you've ever bought any property, if you've ever gotten married, if you've ever gotten divorced, all of those records, they're out there. And so these records are there. And so in heaven, it's not quite like that, that they're, and yet in a way it's even more serious because it says the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And so I don't know how this works, 
because I am in a physical level here, but I'm thinking about, okay, if, there, if we're going to be judged by our works and we're told that God is all-knowing, all-seeing, we're, we're, we're given multiple accounts where he has his servants, the angels, out and about doing things. So is it like this, that there's a scribe mentioned in Ezekiel? So is there like a scribe that is assigned to us and somewhere there's an, a, a record being made of everything, all of our deeds, because it says in other places in the scripture that we're going to give account for every word, every deed, everything we do. And so if this is the case, then somehow, somewhere in heaven, there is this record and when they open it, and if everything is in there that I've ever done, I don't want you to read the book and I don't want to read the book. But there it is, it's all there. And so the, my, my understanding when I read this is what's happening here is there's basically, they come, they find the big section, small section that is yours. Joseph Graber, and then they start going down, you know? When he was three years old, he disobeyed his mother and got some black paint, oil black paint, and painted a lot of things in the garage that he was not supposed to paint. He got a spanking for it. All right, and it just keeps going down the line, right? And so eventually it gets to when I was 20 years old and when I was 25, when I was 13, when I, all of these things. And I don't really want to read them here. I don't want you to know them. I don't want to read them. But while this is happening and I'm having to say, yep, that's me, yep, that's me, yep, that's me, yep, that's me, all the way down the list, over here, there's another book being opened and we're looking and it's the Lamb's Book of Life. And the moment that they find my name in the Lamb's Book of Life, they say, hold on, stop. You can stop reading all of that for a moment. We're not looking for all the things that would condemn him. He did a lot of wicked things in his life here, but according to this record, according to this book, it says that his life has been covered by the blood of the Lamb and that he is now, his life belongs to Jesus. He's in the Lamb's Book of Life and so he is not going to be judged according to those works that he did. He is actually going to be taken into heaven. And so at that point, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away and also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write for these things. These words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So this is the moment that's coming. There's a day coming. And so when Jesus says, don't be afraid of the one who can kill you, be concerned about the one who can throw both body and soul into hell, he's talking about himself. He's talking about himself as being the king. And so he is saying that there's coming a day 
when you will have to answer to me. So in John 14, when we said, let not your heart be troubled, and I, and I think about this, you know, if, if, if my heart is saying, hey, Joseph, nothing to worry about, you got this. Your good deeds are going to outweigh your bad. My heart better be troubled if that's what I'm thinking. If I'm thinking that somehow I'm going to weasel my way in, or I'm somehow going to buy my way in, or I'm somehow going to convince God of my own goodness, I am in so much trouble. And my heart should be troubled. But it might be lying to me and saying, oh, no, 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 don't worry about it. Think about that tomorrow. Today, I've got something else going on today. And so your heart can be very deceitful. And it can try to convince you that you're okay. It can try to convince you that you don't have to worry about this. But Jesus says, don't let it be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. And on down in verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so when you have the Father who is the creator God, and this is his heaven, and he has sent his son down to earth to, to die for us, and then to, he ascends back he, and is now sitting on the, on the great throne and is there is seated at the right hand of God. And this is the father's plan. This is what he is doing. The father wants to do something, and Jesus says there's only one way to the father, and it's through me. Is through Jesus. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And so if you take it all the way back to the Daniel's three friends, and as they're there, and as the music starts playing, and as the big idol is standing there, and the sun is glinting on it, and all the people around them going, ah, and are bowing down to this big idol, and there's a huge noise out on the field out there, and they're standing what they're thinking of is the fact that according to their law, according to the word of God that they've heard, there is coming a day when they must answer for what they will do. And there's coming a day when there's going to be a redeemer. There's coming a day, and they, I do not know how fully they understand it, but they understand this one thing. It is more important that I serve God than that I serve this idol. And so they make that decision. If you look over in Acts, there is a moment when the, uh, the apostles, now Peter, so this is in Acts chapter 5. So first of all, they had the big revival. People were getting saved. A lot of people coming together. They've had upwards of 5,000, maybe upwards of 10,000. Their numbers, uh, verse 14 of chapter 5 says, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And so there was a lot of happening here. And then it happens in verse 17 that the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. So what's happening is they're in a situation. The high priests represent the Jewish nation. The high priests for the last number of years have been deeply troubled because Rome is in charge of Judea. Rome is over Jerusalem. Soldiers are everywhere. They're not their own nation anymore. They, the high priests are representing a law that says what, that through this people group, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed 
but instead of them being a free people group in order to bless all the nations of the earth, they're in bondage. They're, in, they're basically held captive in their own city. And so Rome is in charge of them. And so here are the high priests. They're trying hard to keep the law. They're trying hard to do these right things. And then in the middle of it, what is up with these followers of Jesus? Why are they always making trouble? We, we've been trying to tell them to be quiet and they keep making trouble for us. And so you would think that the apostles, as they're going around preaching about King Jesus and the kingdom of heaven at hand, that they should be afraid of the emperor. They should be afraid of, of, of what's happening in Rome. But no, that's not who they have to be concerned about. The people they're concerned about, the people who are trying to stop them, are actually the people that gave them the word of God. Here are the high priests, the Pharisees. They were the ones who represent everything about God that was known up until the point that Jesus showed up. And when Jesus showed up, he says, I am here to fulfill everything that you guys have been saying. And so the high priests have been doing their daily work and the Pharisees have been reading the scriptures and the synagogues have been going on and all of this stuff has been happening and Jesus says, I'm here to fulfill that. And he actually goes into one of their synagogues, reads from Isaiah and says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me and reads what all the spirit of God is there to do, that he's going to free the captives, that he's going to restore sight to the blind, he's going to do all these things. And he stands there and says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your eyes. It's right here, you can see it, it's done right now, it's happening, this moment and they're missing it. As Jesus says, this is what's happening. And so instead of jumping on board and saying, yes, we believe in Jesus, yes, we believe this is right, they're saying, why do they keep talking about Jesus? This is just really beginning to bother me. And so what you will discover is because there's always this instance when you look at uh, persecution of the past, when you look at any kind of trouble that believers have had, you will always see this. In the beginning of a problem, when, there is, when you have nations that are rising up against nations and there's issues happening, which have been happening now for thousands of years, is a very uncertain time. And it's very difficult, it's very problematic to look out and, and be able to neatly categorize everyone and say, okay, these are my friends and these are my enemies and these are the people I have to watch out for. And, and it's very, very difficult. And so the apostles could have said, you know what? Jerusalem is a very hard field. Jerusalem's a very difficult place for us to actually reach out for anyone. So why don't we go somewhere where it's not quite so emotional? Why don't we go away from this instance where it's so hard and dangerous? And there's just a lot of politics here that we don't quite understand because we think that we thought that the Jews would be excited to hear that the Messiah is here and that he's been here and that he is victorious. And we thought that would be good news, but they're not taking it well. And so we've got this problem. So why don't we just all head to Tarshish or someplace? They could have done that. They could have said that early on and said, you know what? There are right now um, about 5,000 of us and that's a lot, but that's enough to make a small city. Why don't we just go over here and start our own city? We'll start our own place, and in our place, we will have the kingdom of heaven, and we'll do it over there. They could have done that, but they didn't. They stayed in the middle of all of these things, and they're trying to preach, and so here come the high priests. They lay hands on the apostles. They put them in the common prison, verse 19, but at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this, of this life. 
And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely, the guards standing outside before the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. Then one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom we, you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. So this whole time, they're planning. They've got everything in place. They, come, they call the council together. They're, and they're on the temple grounds, put, calling together. The, everyone's coming in. They're hurrying. They've got their scrolls of the law. They've got all their evidence. They've got everything in place. They're coming in. They want to have their credentials of who, how they fit into the Sanhedrin. They're all coming in. And they're passing right by the crowds that are being spoken to by the very people that they want to judge. And at this moment, there should be, a, something should be happening in the eyes of the high priests and the Pharisees. They should say, okay, hold on. Because they send their officer back down to prison and the officer gets there, the guards are standing outside, the doors are locked just the way they'd been left it all night long. The guards have been changing the guard whenever they need to. They've been watching this. It has been securely guarded. They open the door and it's empty. The room is empty. There's no one in there. And so they come back and they're telling the Sanhedrin, um, so the, the guards were in front of the prison and um, the door was locked. It, really, it was. I, I had to use a key. And when we opened it, um, no one was in there. And so the council is like, okay, so hold on. So, and then the other guards are like, yeah, yes, so Changes the guard, changes the guard all night long. We, we kept it. Um, but yeah, they're not in there. And then someone comes running up and says, uh, the people that you're looking for, they're out in the courtyard preaching. And so the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Okay, I think he's asking the wrong question. He should be saying, how did you get out there? You were in prison, and you're not, and you're not. How, what happened? That's what he should be asking. But instead, <clears throat> according to my records, it appears that we told you that you should not be preaching in the name of Jesus, and when we came out there just then, you were doing that. Didn't we tell you not to do that anymore? Wrong question entirely. And yet, that's the question. And so they say to him, he says, look, so this is the, what the high priest is saying. You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, I don't know if you were in Peter's shoes at this point, I know it feels dangerous that you could die, but it's also quite humorous, the fact that they're still stuck on this one thing and you just had an angel bring you out of jail and, and tell you to go preach over there. And you're pretty sure that that same angel is still circling around and is still hanging out 
and that God is doing something. And right now, the apostles are feeling something that they have believed all along, but they are feeling very strongly that God is here, and one day we're gonna stand with him in glory. And you know what? It doesn't matter what the authorities say. It doesn't matter what these people say. We need to preach the gospel. And so they say it. We, Peter, the other apostles answered, said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him, God, has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel, forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. He preached to the high priest. He just said, you know what? Here's the gospel. This is what I'm telling everyone. This is what you need to know and this is what you need to believe. If you can, they have another council and they say, okay, okay, um, you need to, just not preach anymore. And so again, I think it's in, let's see, uh, the very last verses of chapter of Acts chapter five, it says, so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing, oh wait, I gotta read verse 40 to make this make sense. In verse 40, it says, they agreed with Gamaliel, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, we can say that so easily. They called for the apostles and had beaten them. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they beat them. So now they're being punished. They're being beaten. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And when I think of who was here, that Peter was involved in this, and I think about going all the way back to that night when they're all sitting around the table and they're eating and Jesus starts saying, someone's here is going to betray me. And everyone's like, wait a minute, who's going to betray me? And in that moment, they start having this, this fear because their hearts are deceitful and they understand I might be the one. That's what they're, it's weird how they're asking these questions. Who, is it me? Is it me? Like, do they not trust themselves that much? And yet they're saying, is it me? And it goes around and then Jesus says, go what, you, you know, what you're gonna do, go quickly. And Judas leaves. And then they head out into the, into the garden and as they're up there in the garden and the soldiers come, Peter pulls out a sword and starts whacking with it. And next thing you know, he's running. Next thing you know, he's kind of creeping back in, trying to figure out where Jesus is. He comes in close enough where he's seen. Hey, aren't you one of them? Oh no, I don't even know who, who that man is in there. Then why are you sneaking in to see what's going on? And he comes in a little closer and is like trying to keep an eye on Jesus without being seen. And he's asked again, Do you, you're one of them. And he's like, oh no. And he swore with an oath that he doesn't even know the man. And then there is a, the, the rooster crows and he's reminded of a conversation that he was going to deny Jesus three times. And he goes outside and he weeps bitterly. This is the Peter that we're talking about. And now he's standing here in the temple preaching to the high priest and telling him, I'm telling you about Jesus. Jesus actually fulfills everything that you're doing. All the rituals that you're in charge of day by day by day by day in the temple, Jesus fulfills all of that. I am telling you about the one that our people have been looking for for hundreds of years. He's here and he was, you killed him actually and now he wrote, he's risen from the dead and he's in heaven and we're representing him. We're telling you the things that we have seen and heard. And in, in the middle of all of this, can you imagine going to Peter 
on the night that he's running and he's outside weeping bitterly and you come up to him where he is and you're like, Peter, Peter, are you afraid to die? And what would his answer be in that moment? But now look at him over here in front of the council and, you, and you, or you're like, you know, the council is having their moment over there with Gamaliel and they're having this whole conversation and you're like, Peter, are, are you afraid to die? What's he doing? He's laughing. He's, he is full of the joy of the Lord. He's full of the joy of the Holy Spirit. He's not afraid to die at this moment. Why? Because he has tasted and seen that the Lord is good and he believes that there is an end coming and he knows where he is going to be on that day. He is not concerned that on that day, as they're reading down the list of everything that Peter's ever done, he denied the Lord three times. He's not concerned that that is going to come up against him. He knows it's all there. He's confessed it all. He knows it's all before God. And he knows one other thing. He knows that the Lamb of God knows him and has written his name in his book. And he is confident of this. And now Peter, for the rest of his life, is able to go into all kinds of circumstances and eventually to go to the cross and die because he is not afraid to die in the way he was before. Something has changed. He has grown. If you have not surrendered your life to God, you should be afraid to die. Your heart should be troubled. Full surrender to Christ, Romans 10, 9 and 10, where it says, we believe in your heart, and I have been messing this quotation up the last however many times I've been trying to say it. So I'll just turn to it. Romans 10, 9, 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has risen from, raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I think it's amazing that our heart, the very thing that we're told is so deceitful, the very thing that is constantly wanting to be troubled about many things, the very thing that will lead us astray, the very thing that will make us lust after things we should not have, the very thing that is wrong about us is able to make a right decision and say, no, we've got to follow Christ. We've got to surrender to Christ. I believe in my heart that Jesus is who he said he was. I believe in my heart that he didn't just die and disappear. I believe that he rose again and that he ascended into heaven, that he's standing, in, that he's with God, that he's sitting on the right hand of God and that one day I will see him. And on that day when I see him, that is, I do not want to think then, oh, should I have been afraid about this? I want to have thought about this a long time before, and I want you to think about it a long time before. Am I afraid to die? Why am I afraid to die? Because there's something coming after I'm done here. There's something coming that's beyond this life, and on that side of things, do I know what's coming, and am I, am I in a good position for it? And I'm talking about all of these things today because even now, as we are gathering here, there are a lot of Christians in the United States of America who are not gathering. And some of them, because of fear, are not gathering. Some of them are gathering purely because of politics. And I don't want us to be gathering for the wrong reasons, and I don't want us to be not gathering because of the wrong reasons. I want us to be standing strong on the gospel of Jesus Christ to understand, to believe, to speak, to act, 
I don't want us to be coming to where the big statue is and there's the fiery furnace over there and we're like, oh, we're here to jump in the fiery furnace. I don't want us to be stupid and go running looking for trouble. I don't want us to be volunteering, hey, throw me in the lion's den. I don't want us to be foolish. I want us to be busy believing in Christ, doing what is right, and to be willing Philippians 1.29 has this beautiful verse that Paul puts in. And Paul, again, was one of those who, had, who later suffered for his faith. He died for his faith. And he says some amazing things about suffering. And he gets to say things about suffering that I have never experienced, so I can't say them. And there we go. Philippians 1, verse 29. And he says something here. And you can get the, read the whole context about this is the, in the same time when he's talking about to live is Christ and to die is gain. But in verse 29, he says, it, for to you, it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. In one sentence, he says, it has been granted to you to believe in Jesus. This is a gift when we read the scripture, when we understand the outcome, when we hear the testimony of people for 2,000 years who have believed in Christ, we understand this is a gift. We were on our way to hell. We were so lost. We were doomed to die and to die the second death. And then Jesus interposed and he rescued us. And now we believe in Jesus and we're not hell bound anymore. Now we're heaven bound. Now we have purpose on this earth. Now we have something to live for. This is a gift. We understand that. And he says it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Paul says it's a gift to suffer for Christ. And so if this is a gift, would it not just be better to just go find the fiery furnace, to go find the lion's den, to go find the, the people that will, that will kill us and just say, hey, I believe in Jesus. Come on, no, 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 no. Come on, kill me. Is, wouldn't that be better? Is that what we're supposed to do? Except for one thing. Christ is on the throne now. His kingdom is now. It's happening right now in the middle of all the nations around the world. The people of Christ are busy doing the will of God and it's not just going to happen then. If all our salvation was for was so that we could one day be with him, then yes, dying would be awesome. We would just die, be in his presence, start doing his will there. But he's actually asking us to do his will here. So now the question becomes, are you afraid to die? Or really, are you afraid to live? Are you afraid to live for Christ, for the kingdom? And when you look around you and you see everything that's happening, you're always going to see some people who seem to jump into the fire. You're always going to be see some people who seem to run as far as they can from the fire, and they are all about safety, safety, safety. And you and I, we're not about safety. We're not about danger. We're about Jesus. And on some days, it will make us look as if we were all about danger. And on some days, it'll make us look as if we're all about safety. But it's not the point. The point is Jesus. We want to follow him. We want to follow him. And so I cannot make some huge ruling up here and say, okay, guys, here's the deal on masks. Here's how it works in the kingdom of heaven. I cannot tell you that. Because for some people, in order to obey Christ, they will take off a mask. For some people, they will put on a mask. And if you think that you can figure it all out and tell everyone just by the mask on their face or not, then you're, you're going to miss what God is really doing. Because right now, God is at work. 
He is at work in the big churches. He's at work in the small churches. He's at work in the countries that have some kind of liberty and democracy, and he's working the communist nations. He is at work all around the world, and he's doing the work, and he has a will, he has a plan, and he's asking all of us, and the question that we're asking is, am I afraid to face him knowing that I was not obeying him, that I was not living for him, that I wasn't I was not only was I not willing to die for him, I wasn't willing to live for him. Living for him, I, I, I wanted to live for myself. My heart was deceitful and took me off on a path that was not good. And so the question that we have to ask as we ask this other thing, uh, when we say, are you afraid to die? You know, it doesn't do any good to say, all right, all right, hold on, hold on. Um, I am not, a, okay, I'm still a little afraid. Okay, a little more. Ugh, I am not afraid to die. That's not how it works. You cannot muster it up. You cannot create enough bravery inside to not be afraid. Because I'm telling you to stand before the king of the whole earth and not be prepared is a very fearful thing. And we should be afraid to die if we do not know him and if we have not submitted to him. Psalm 1611 says, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. From all through the scripture, there is this theme that in his presence is something beautiful. And so we should be seeking his presence. When you have experienced him and you know that you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, whether it is in private prayer, whether it is in public prayer, However it works for you, if you are seeking the Lord because you will not know the Father apart from Jesus Christ, when you're seeking him and you're seeking his presence and you're pursuing him, then I don't have to tell you whether or not you're afraid to die. I don't have to logically go through and say, well, let me see. So if you believe this and if you believe, I don't have to do any of that. If you have experienced Jesus Christ and you know that right on the other side of death is Jesus, you will not be afraid to die you will say, I want to go home and be with Jesus, and that's gonna be awesome. However, I've been praying, and he wants me to go do this, and so for right now, I'm going to live for Jesus, and so in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures evermore. He is showing me the path of life. If we do, if we do not trust him to show us the path of life, we should be afraid to die. If we are not his, in his presence, our heart should be very troubled. In Hebrews, the, the, it's encapsulated in this, Hebrews 13, verse 14. This is just one verse out of there. Uh, the whole chapter, of, the whole book of Hebrews is awesome for strengthening our faith in very difficult times. But he says, we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. That's the way we live. We look on all the kingdoms of the earth and we say, you know, I was born under this flag. You were born under that flag. But we're not about these flags. We're about him. We're about Jesus. We have no continuing city here, but we, have, we are seeking the one which is to come. So there is a day coming. New heavens, new earth, Jesus on the throne, lambs, uh, the, the whole marriage supper of the lamb. We're all to, with him in his presence, fullness of joy. Until that day, I have moments of joy. I look around me and I see, okay, this is good. I love what God is doing here. This is, oh, this person has not surrendered to God. That is looking very, very painful. I do not like looking at that, but I have to because I'm related to them or because they're my neighbor or because for some reason they're in my life. And so I'm stuck with not everything is full of joy, but there is a lot of joy because I'm seeing God at work, because I'm submitted to him. So I'm just gonna ask you today, 
as we're looking at everything that's happening all around us, are you experiencing God? Because if you are experiencing him, and it doesn't matter whether you're old or young, whether you're big or small, every child can seek the Lord. You can pray. You can look to know him. You can pursue him. And the, the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he wants to be found by you. He wants to be discovered. But when we find him, He's not just a fuzzy little pet that we keep in our little box and say, aha, I found Jesus. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. It's kind of like we're going out on a quest and we open the back door and we step out and suddenly there is the captain of the Lord's host and he's standing there and we think, are we gonna die? He's wearing a sword and then we see his eyes and we understand his heart and he says, actually, I came to call you to follow me. And we say, well, look at me. You know, I'm in my pajamas. I'm not really good at this fighting stuff. And he says, follow me. I will make you a warrior. And so we do. And we follow him. And throughout the world, there are people who are following God and in some of the most strangest circumstances. There was a group of believers in communist Cuba that were in prison because of their faith. And because of their faith, they were in prison, which meant that in Cuba at the time, if you came in as a thief or a robber or any of those kind of things, you wore a blue uniform. But if you came in on other grounds, philosophical grounds is what they were calling the religious uh, for all the Christians, then you wore a yellow robe. Well, after a while, the Cuban government says, you know what? That yellow robe is making all of them be stronger and making them not submit to us in what we're doing. So we're going to switch it out to a blue robe. For the next 20 years, every one of those philosophical prisoners, all those believers, they were in prison. They wore nothing but their underwear because they were not going to submit to being a common thief. And they were doing it because they believed in Jesus. And you're like, wait, hold, hold, hold on. What? And so you will find that throughout your life, you will bump into people who are motivated by their love for God, their understanding for the kingdom, and they're living strange ways. You're like, what is going on? And yet they are able to walk up straight to the doors of death, look death in the eye and say, I'm not afraid of you because when I walk through this door, I'm going to see Jesus on the other side. And so I, I'm not asking you to look a particular way politically. I'm not asking you to dress a particular way religiously. I'm asking you, are you afraid to die? Do you know what's on the other side? Have you met Jesus? And if you haven't, put your faith and trust in him. Trust the Lord. He is faithful. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. He is able to rescue us from whatever we're in, and he is able to, whenever things, and this is what my troubled heart had to learn this week and is continually learning, and I'm having to learn over and over again. No matter how troubled I am, no matter how confused I am, no matter how difficult everything seems, no matter how hard the path ahead looks, no matter how concerned I am with whatever's going on, when I take a moment to check in with my captain and say, Lord, I submitted my life to you. It's not my life. It's your life. What do you want me to do? He gives me peace and direction. And it's not always easy. Sometimes the things he says are very, very difficult, but he gives me the command and he gives me peace in my heart and I'm able to walk into what seems like very difficult circumstances and experience the joy of his presence. And so when I ask, are you afraid to die? I'm also asking, are you afraid to live? 
Are you running scared because all around you everything is so confusing so you're trying not to do any of it? No, let's not be afraid to live, let's not be afraid to die, but let's make sure that we're connected to the source of all true life, to Jesus Christ, and that we're walking with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us your word. Thank you, Father, that you have not left us wondering how we're supposed to get to you. But Lord, you said if we believe in you, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, that we will be saved. And so, Father, I pray for each of us here, for everyone who's listening, for that as we're going into life and as our heart is being troubled, as we are being set about by fear on all sides, Lord, that we would not be afraid to die, we'd not be afraid to live, but that we would pursue you with everything we've got. And Lord, that we would be able to say with confidence, I've surrendered my life to Christ, I'm his. And on that day, when they open the books and they look at all the wicked things from my past, they're also gonna find that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life and that I will be with him for eternity because of that. Father, I pray this for each of us. Let us know you. Lord, continue to draw us, but we want to submit and surrender. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.